And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating sphere. Welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight. And I'm really screwing up the archive people because they have to somehow take out that live part. But I want you to know that all is well in the land of enchantment tonight, except I can't see the comet again. Now, it's been, and I was telling a friend of mine a few minutes ago this, it's been like a solid month of extraordinarily weird, weird, bad, bad weather, if you want to look at the sky. I mean, I'm here in the land of enchantment. This is the, you know, home of the free and the land of the brave, and where never a discouraging word is to be heard, at least from the antelope. And it's been cloudy and rainy and foggy and muggy. I mean, 80% humidity in the deserts of New Mexico. So for morning after morning after morning, ever since this thing was found by serendipity in, in March, I've been trying, you know, getting up, staying up. Looking at the eastern sky, I mean, to, for me to see the northeastern sky, I got to walk a, a bit and go up hills and all that. And every morning it was cloudy and wind whipped and rain and fog. I mean, really weird. It's like weather for back east. And then after the last show on last Saturday, I think, and then we had the big thunderstorm on, on Sunday, which knocked us out, on Monday night, As the front moved through, because it was some kind of front, the clouds began to clear. And I walked up the hill, and it was blowing like 40 miles an hour. And have you ever tried to hold binoculars steady in a 40-mile-an-hour gale? It's hard. So I went up another road, because I'm in a maze of hills and roads. And I was able to get up behind like like a windscreen or wind shadow. And then I found one of those telephone thingies. By the, by the street, and I was able to sit down and look northwest, balancing the binoculars, you know, on my knees to counter the wind, and lo and behold, there it was, just exactly where the chart said it should be, which was uh, south of the Big Dipper's Bowl, moving in a northwest diagonal direction. And it was I, – I, I sat there, stood, sat, you know, alternated for like an hour watching this thing and realizing it was over 70 million miles away from Earth, like 30 million miles away from the sun. And it had these two tails, the narrow bluish ion tail and then this other tail that is broad and fan-like and is kind of like – well, it's individual particles of dust. Now, they call them dust, but they're really particles of ice and dust. And we now know from NASA's and NASA's visits to several comets that this coma, this cloud of material, which is called loosely dust, and which is ejected and follows Keplerian trajectory. So you get these bizarre fan-like uh, features in the dust tail because they're each little particles in a separate Keplerian orbit of the sun together but totally by itself kind of like you know all of us in this pandemic thing anyway I went looking after I had this marvelous experience because now I can say yes I saw the comet 
as I've been saying to you for like last month, you got to go out, forget television, forget the internet, forget the web, go look at this thing. This is why astronomers become astronomers. This connectedness, this, this sense that when you watch this video, which we posted as item number one on the website, that's what you're playing in the background. This is video shot individual frames from the International Space Station, 250 miles upstairs, on the night side of the Earth, with the cities of the planet glowing softly through the clouds, and moonlight drenching the night side landscape. And above the horizon, which is like two, three hundred miles away, is this greenish arc the airglow layer, the excitation of oxygen atoms, the layer that kind of, you know, houses the ozone surplus that screens us from ultraviolet. And then as you're watching this, you will see kind of what I saw, but from a very terrestrial location. You will see the Pleiades rise. And then moments after, as the sun is brightening that eastern limb of the earth, and you can see the three-dimensional configuration of the clouds far over toward the east, you'll see this little brush rising against the background stars. And there she is, Comet Neowise. So... If you haven't seen it because of all the bad weather, I mean, the other night when the Lowell Observatory did their live streaming thing on the comet, I was surprised how many people all over the world had really bad weather. You know, almost like kind of somebody didn't want us to see this damn thing. I'm being slightly facetious. But it was, it was, it was the reason I got interested many, many, many years ago and astronomy itself. It's that connection. And then as this thing rises, you will know, at some level, apart from all the bizarre conversations and the cliched, you know, conspiracy theories and the ranting and raving and all these people who are like ants running around in a confined ant box, there's something bigger going on. The simultaneity of so many seemingly separate events, but all taking place now. The COVID crisis, the comet, the connection with Mars, the idea that comets literally have seeded the same damn DNA everywhere and where it finds a nook, a friendly place, it grows. I'm going to see if Chandra you know, agrees with that. The point is, this is visually, if no words can help, this is visually how we measure our connection. I believe, and I'm going to be talking, obviously, with Dr. Wickramasinghe for the next three hours. I believe that we are standing literally at a juncture in history that only happens maybe once every 26,000 years, synchronized with the procession. And we'll get into some of the mechanics of how that might work and what it could mean for the other series we're going to talk about with Chandra. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our URL, click on tonight's banner, 
which has that gorgeous comet shot that I borrowed from an observer in, I think, Alaska. And the title of tonight's show, Have Comets Seeded Life Across the Solar System, Including Mars, for Jan- July 26th. I keep wanting to say January. I want the year to be over. 2020, one for the books. Let's get on with it. Because 2021 is going to be one heck of a year. I mean, in a positive sense. Anyway, click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Scroll down, or you can click on the fast links right under the banner. Click on my items. And item number one is this video from the space station. This stunning video of the comet rising over the sunrise of the Earth. Now, item number two, right under that, is how to watch the NASA Mars 2020 Perseverance rover launch. And there's, you know, a lot of data points, a lot of timelines in that news story. They're going to be doing briefings on NASA television all this week. That gives you the times. They'll obviously be duplicated on YouTube. So NASA has a YouTube channel, so you'll find them there as well. If you don't have what's called NASA Select, which is on your cable box, an actual uh, direct link to NASA, which we have. Item number three, this is really cool. This is going to be the first spacecraft that we have sent to Mars in, well, since 1976. How many years is that? That's quite a few years, decades. That is capable of detecting life on Mars. Now, technically, that's accurate, but politically, not exactly. And we'll discuss what the difference could be with Chandra in a few minutes. The really cool part about uh, Perseverance, which, by the way, everybody is now nicknamed Percy, which is perfect because that's what the agency intended, because what does Percy also communicate? Obviously, for those of us here in the glorious American Southwest, Percival Lowell, the Boston Brahmin in the 19th century who built, left civilization, left, you know, the East, left Boston, left the Brahmins, and literally, young man, went west to a place called Mars Hill, just outside Flagstaff, Arizona. Know it well. Robin and I went so many times and had so many wonderful adventures, including in uh, 2003, when I was able, through miracles and her amazing persuasion to get actually into Lowell's 24-inch dome, the refractor, the one he used to track all those amazing things on Mars, the canals and the moving clouds and the changing colors of the seasons. That telescope I was able to borrow for that night and to take our own electronic imagery of Mars during the closest approach in the summer of 2003 during another monsoon where the clouds mysteriously parted and thereby hangs another tale. We don't have time tonight to go into that. And we were able to see it and get photographs and look through Percival Lowell's own Mars telescope in 2003 when Mars was closest than it had been in 60,000 years. Anyway, um, new news. The Perseverance Roser, you know, nicknamed Percy, which stands for most of us for Percival Lowell, because it's going to be, you'll see, his mission. It carries to Mars the first helicopter. 
attached under the belly of the rover in a specially designed box, which will open up, and then the rover will kind of move sideways, revealing this little helicopter standing alone on Mars called InSight. I'm sorry, Ingenuity. InSight's the other spacecraft. Ingenuity. Because it really is ingenious. I mean, how do you fly a helicopter in an atmosphere which is supposed to be, according to NASA, only about as dense as the air on Earth at 100,000 feet up. I mean, I've never seen them test a helicopter by tossing it out at 100,000 feet and watching it fly. But that's what they were told, that under those incredibly thin air conditions, this little helicopter is going to fly as part of a controlled test to see whether aircraft can be used on Mars to to survey, to explore, to you know, be kind of scouts, early recon folks, whatever. And they're going to do that next year. I mean, can you imagine if, if they see something in the distance and they're too far away to really get there quickly? But they send the chopper over and it reports back via a live video link, which is recorded in the spacecraft in, in, the, uh, in Perseverance. And then that will relay that data to Earth and we will see video of the chopper flights on Mars from both the lander, the rover, and the helicopter. Amazing things. And that's not even getting into what they're going to be finding. And Chandra and I are going to talk about that momentarily. Okay, if you continue down that list, number four, um, Perseverance is going to carry a little tiny speck of meteorite that all of the analyses say originally came from Mars, 700,000 years, almost a million years after it got here by means of a, you know, blow and impact on Mars, blowing it into space, cruising around the sun for God knows how long before it intercepted the Earth's atmosphere and fell to Earth and then was picked up 700,000 years uh, later um, by, by us. So they put a little tiny piece of this back on the rover because they're using it as a calibration target so if they find something unusual in the chemistry, the organics, whatever, from the instruments, they have a certified piece of Mars to test it against to calibrate that the instruments are not doing crazy, crazy things. Simply called calibration. Okay, number five. This is really crucial to tonight's conversation. There was an article that recently appeared. Um, it's called Could Discovering or Why discovering Martians could be disappointing. And that's going to get into a whole discussion about indigenous Martians, indigenous earthlings, or do we all come from the same source, in which case we're going to find that the genetics are identical, in which case it's not going to fulfill Sagam's dictum, which was that if we find as much as one independently evolved microbe on Mars, it means the galaxy is teeming with life. According to this article, that may not exactly be true. And Chandra and I will discuss that. And then, if things weren't weird enough, uh, in the middle of all this mix, you know, comets and missions to Mars that seem to be on the verge of confirming that there's life there, and uh, all this COVID stuff, you know, did COVID come from outer space? That's another thing we're going to talk about with Chandra. We've got, remember how I had a caller a couple weeks ago who said there was going to be this major story in the New York Times taking the whole Nimitz Navy UFO thing to the next level? 
it has appeared. And in it, a well-known consultant, an astrophysicist named Eric Davis, says on the record that he has briefed the Navy that these things that have been seen visually on radar, infrared, whatever, that have been reported, these videos that first started appearing in the public domain in December of 2017. Again, front page story in the New York Times, this consultant who briefed Navy and senators and congressmen on Capitol Hill, he's now saying on the record that some of these things seem to be off-world vehicles not made on this earth. So that's suddenly thrown into the mix. Oh, and if that were not enough, if you look at item number seven, there's a series of mainstream papers now appearing in the biological um, uh, uh, journals, like uh, the Journal of Astrobiology. And what these guys are saying, guys and gals, they're collaborating on these papers, they're basically saying that there is current life on Mars, such as colonies of photosynthesizing mushrooms in Eagle Crater, with the hematite hypothesis for the blueberries being resoundingly refuted. And they go on from there. And they're they're relying not only on the instrumentation, on the you know, the sensory system, the analysis of soil and atmosphere and all that, they're looking at something called morphology in the pictures. They're looking at the shapes of these objects. And then they're comparing them to shapes of similar, if not identical, you know, warning Will Robinson, should not exist, morphologies, shapes of biological forms here on planet Earth. I mean, how is that possible? Well, there's a couple, three ways to explain it, all of which are extraordinarily interesting, and one of which may in fact turn out to be right. Again, to be discussed with my uh, friend and colleague tonight, Dr. Chandra Rikrama Singh. Oh, and if you go to 8, 9, 10, there's a whole bunch of comet images there, stunning common images which we posted, so we'll get to those as the conversation proceeds. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Wickrama Singh, if I can find uh, where we have his, oh, we don't seem to have his bio. Hmm, That's kind of not good. Not good at all. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the short form. He was a friend of Sir Fred Hoyle. He was a friend of my friend Arthur C. Clarke. He, at a very young age, moved from Sri Lanka to um, Britain and uh, became an eminent professor in astrobiology at a couple of major universities. He is now, quote, retired. Yeah, I believe that. And he is on the other side of midnight once again. Dr. Wickrama Singh, welcome back. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Nice talking to you. Well, let's see. Where should we be? I, I know what we should do. Give me an update on where we stand with COVID-19, because I've been quietly, independently looking in the same directions I think you have. And I'm finding more and more supporting evidence that this thing did not originate on planet Earth. Well, I think I think the, the evidence is very powerful in that uh, direction. My colleague, who uh, is a medical biochemist and bioscientist, has been studying the, the, the RNA sequences. And he really has a paper that is now in press in which he confirms, or he thinks he can confirm, that uh, 
there is no way in which uh, these uh, viruses could have come from animals on the earth, uh, pangolins or whatever, bats. I think he's uh, essentially put that theory to rest. And so we are left with uh, uh, a situation where the beginning and the origins of this virus is literally unknown. And the connection with space is, of course, uh, really quite challenging and, and widely criticized, disputed, and so on. But that's something that one has to consider. But I think before going yeah, into but that... Yeah, but Chandra, every, every out-of-the-box theory is always challenged. It goes through the list of three every, Everything. Yeah, yeah. everything is, uh, that is not orthodox is challenged. But I think, I think uh, before coming to such a radical uh, situation of saying that this uh, virus came from space, it's probably worth... Uh, delving a little bit into the context because it has a deep history and let's if you if you permit me let's begin at the beginning absolutely so. i love stories that begin <laughs> at the beginning and start uh, here on the earth and ask the question do we really know how life started on the earth and the answer has to be uh, emphatic no i think there's a lot of people who argue that life had to start on the earth it did start on the earth the evidence for that is zilch. It's nothing. There's no evidence at all. And I think the the the, the main the deep history of this is really uh, is really quite a long deep history that goes back to Aristotle in the third century B.C., who argued or he, he postulated that life had to start on the earth by what he thought was a process of spontaneous generation, and and that concept of spontaneous generation has really gone through many stages of evolution over the last hundred or couple of hundred years, ending up is now regarded as being the orthodox point of view, the Haldane or Perrin theory of spontaneous generation. Now, experiments have been done from the 1950s onwards by many, many scientists, American scientists in particular. Stanley Miller was the was the great pioneer of showing that organic molecules that could be the basis of life are fairly easy to make in the laboratory. You can start with uh, very simple chemicals and, and use electric sparks and so on and make organic wasn't, molecules. Wasn't this the famous Charles Miller experiment in San Diego? Was, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That was an experiment that was really quite uh, groundbreaking at the time. Oh, first time. It was astonishing. Mm. And it was foretold that uh, that in a matter of years, maybe decades at most, one could actually we could they they would actually be able to show that life, micro microbes, microbacteria can be uh, made in a similar way. And of course, that has that effort has continued in all the the most sophisticated biotech companies and laboratories in the world with no success at all. So I think the, uh, it's, it's a doomed project. There's no way in which life could have started on the earth by a process of spontaneous generation. Now, the alternative theory that I have been with my colleague Fred Hoyle and a few others um, sort of promulgating, pushing for a long time, was that life came from a much, much bigger system, that life is indeed a cosmic phenomenon. And that comets that we talked about at the beginning of your program are the carriers of this cosmic legacy of life. And um, 
So it's comets that uh, distribute life uh, to across the universe, across certainly across the solar system. The first comets that hit the Earth, which really we know that there was a period in the Earth's early history, about four, four and a half billion years ago, when the Earth was simply pounded with comet and asteroid impacts. And yeah, the so-called heavy bombardment period. Heavy bombardment, even sometimes called the, in the geological calendar, called the Hadean Epoch. Ah. Hades, of, of course, is a god of the of the underworld. So this is a hellish epoch where the earth was um, was being pounded. And have you ever seen one of those amazing Bonstell images of that period? I have seen a few. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're this, he had a uh, cover of Life magazine sometime in the fifties, and he had this molten earth with a molten moon and big meteor bolide streaking through the skies and a wisp of atmosphere, and it was so evocative of this Hadean epoch. Yeah, I mean, and and the and the really surprising discovery that was made only three or four years ago is that the oldest bacterial life, the evidence for the oldest bacterial life, is exactly at that epoch. Rocks that formed 4.3, 4.4 billion years ago are now exposed in certain parts of the world, in Australia, in Canada, and and so forth. And these have been found to contain the oldest evidence for bacterial life on the earth. So there's no chance. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing because that it means it came here from some place else. It came from the deep universe from, from, so the, the beginnings of life are now pushed to a, almost to the, to the origins of the universe. I and, saw a reference the other day of an experiment with some kind of sounding rocket where they, you know, lofted it up and then they, drove it back at high speed into the atmosphere to get hypersonic speeds and heating and all that. And they deliberately smeared DNA on the outside and they were able to collect and culture the damn DNA after the heat of re-entry, 3000, 4,000 degrees. So these little guys can be incredibly robust. Absolutely. And I mean, viruses, bacteria that might be brought from comets. And we think all of this essentially came to the earth from comets. That's why the connection with COVID was mentioned by you. And I think it's really relevant. Uh, These things are extremely hardy in terms and space hardy. So um, who was the first transpermia guy? Wasn't he a Swede, Arrhenius or somebody? Arrhenius was the the first... uh, uh, modern scientist who picked up the uh, the ideas of transpermia, which of course go back in terms of deep history to uh, the fifth century BC Greece. It was a man called Anaxagoras who first suggested that uh, uh, the seeds of life were everywhere in the cosmos, and oh. they were just so. And this was uh, a theory that, or a philosophical idea that was remained fallow until the the beginning of the 20th century when Arrhenius was uh, was really quite powerful in advocating it. But it didn't get very far at that time. Uh, he was, Arrhenius was shouted down very uh, promptly by lots of biologists, lots of botanists and so on, who made the argument, and now we know it's the wrong argument. Well, wasn't he that, a chemist because there was a bit of, you know, inter-service rivalry going on? That's right, that's right, yeah. The chemist, he was a chemist, he won a Nobel Prize for 
chemistry and so on. And his biological colleague said, oh, you're talking nonsense because the bacteria, seeds of life, do not, cannot, and can absolutely not. <laughs> survive, must not survive in space. And, and they were, of course, as you said, from your experiment on the rocket, the DNA on the rocket, they've been proved to be woefully wrong. Bacteria, viruses are incredibly space hardy, or some of them are space hardy. And um, uh, we, we recently we've discovered uh, bacteria on the outside of the International Space Station. This was only two years ago. And the Russian biochemists, a uh, team of them, and I have been collaborating with some of them recently, writing papers together and so on. And they, they, what they did over about three or four years, up mm. to 2008, uh, no, not 2008, mm. 2018. Hey, you know you're too fascinating to listen to. We almost missed our break. My guest this morning is Dr. Chandra Rikrama Singh, and we're waxing rhapsodic over the idea that the comet we're seeing, neowise, in the dawn, now in the evening skies, that it is in fact a harbinger of how life spreads across the universe, and the implications of which are so profound and could be so confusing to certain scientists that uh, deserves a further exploration when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return right after a couple of messages. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire... desire is to awaken your imagination... ...with questions... ...questions that have not been asked, yet need answering... The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. And the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, July 26th. Just five days before the launch of Perseverance to Mars, a mission which I believe, and we're going to talk about some of the evidence tonight, that along with the Chinese and the United Arab Emirates, these are the missions that are going to reveal, that are going to confirm the existence of current life on Mars. Now, I know what they're saying. Oh, it's looking for past or ancient life. So I guess I'm going to have to ask our resident uh, astrobiologist, 
uh, Chandra, what's the difference between an instrument which can design to detect past life and one that trips over little beasties living in the soil right now? I mean, is there any real difference? Well, I think there is a difference. To to detect present life, uh, we've got to show that there is active metabolism taking place. There's a reproduction of microorganisms taking place. To to discover past life, you need only to find sort of telltale signs of uh, of sort of biochemicals, of relic relic organisms, and so forth. Uh, so it's it's present life that is most exciting. If we can confirm the existence of present life on Mars, and that I think is absolutely almost 100 uh, percent. Uh, a foregone conclusion because in 1976 with the Viking mission that sent a lander to Mars, um, my friend Gil Levin and Patricia Strutt had an experiment called the labeled gas release experiment. What they did was to pour nutrients, the sort of stuff that bacteria like to eat, they poured it onto the soil. Onto the soil yeah, it was, it found- was kind of nicknamed chicken soup. It wasn't it, yeah. And it, it was a, a, a resounding positive for that experiment. And so they they were quite excited. And, and it made... was positive in several different ways. Like when they did a control, to making they took a soil sample and heated the damn soil sample to, you know, a few hundred degrees, the activity went away. Went dead, yeah. So I think I think they were absolutely convinced, 100% convinced that they had detected life. But there was a... Do you know what was really convincing for me? Yes. Years later, and NASA had apparently destroyed all the data tapes, the magnetic recordings of the original <laughs> experiment, just, just destroyed them like they did with the Apollo yeah. 11 video. But yeah. someone, I, someone, someone found a set of Xerox copies of the individual graphic showing the graph of activity in those little cells in Levin's experiment. And yeah. the stunning, and they showed it at a spies or spies uh, conference in San Diego some years ago. Yeah, I was there. I, oh, okay, I, okay. So the the coolest thing was Chandra, the damn thing seemed to have a Martian circadian rhythm. Absolutely, yeah. It was seasonal. Yes. And the, yeah. And daily. And, uh, and daily. Yeah, absolutely. Just yeah, like the current methane. And remember the last time you were on, we discussed the anomalous oxygen that NASA mm. said, oh, please help us. We don't know what we're seeing. Can you give us some good ideas for why we're seeing this rhythmic oxygen? I mean, give me a break. Yeah, I think there's a deep-seated hostility to any discovery that is sort of almost any discovery whatsoever that lays life outside the Earth. There's been a, a scientific sort of cabal that tabooed or banned that kind of uh, okay. thinking. Okay, take off your science hat and put on your philosopher hat. Mm. Why? Why are we supposed to be so isolated by every level of official government, private corporations, disinformation campaigns, ostracizing real scientists who say, can I have some more porridge, please? In other words, what's the driver behind keeping us down on the farm? I think we like to believe that we are in absolute control of our destiny. I think that's it. We are a, a superpower, or the Americans and, and perhaps the Chinese are all superpowers. They think themselves as superpowers. 
in absolute control of their own economies and destinies and so on. And they don't want to think that there could be life outside the earth. They think that life has to be confined to the earth and hopefully confined only to the Americas, but, but that's another matter. Uh, so I think it's just national egotism, uh, cultural egotism that drives this uh, deep-seated hostility mm. towards any person or, or theory that uh, asserts um, otherwise. Mm. I mean, even the, even the discovery of organics and the argument that there are organic molecules that could be related to life outside the Earth was deeply resented. And I can tell you a story. In 1954, my uh, friend and, and colleague collaborator for a long time, Sir Fred Hoyle, he wrote a paper arguing that there has to be molecules, hydrogen molecules, all kinds of molecules in deep space, a very compelling paper, and he couldn't get it published anywhere. Uh, he Fred to, Hoyle couldn't get that yeah, published? Anywhere. He was, in, for in folks, the, for, for you who don't know, Fred Hoyle was like, uh, you know, one of the Beatles. In the scientific community, he was a superstar. He'd come up with this amazing idea, you know, refinements of, of Beta's model for how stars shine. He was the, really the world's first modern astrophysicist. Uh, he wrote amazing science fiction. I love The Black Cloud. Um, he was a polymath. He was, he, was, he was a lion among men. And they wouldn't publish a paper by him on astrobiology well, yeah oh, oh, yeah in the 1950s this is before just before i came on the scene and he told me that it was that for that reason that he wrote the black cloud the ah, novel black ah, cloud ah, ah, came from essentially from the rejection that he had of of all his arguments see from so, stress gums great art because it really is a damn good novel <laughs> isn't it yeah and so uh when i started working with him i started working with uh on this problem of identifying cosmic dust. And at the time it was thought to be inorganic. No one believed that there could be organic molecules. Little, organic. little flaky spirals of, of graphite or needles. I yeah. think of yeah, that's know, right, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was my work with Fred and uh, I, both myself working on my own and also with Fred Hall that we, we essentially tipped the balance. And by the 1970s, Organic molecules were being discovered uh, by radio astronomers in the in space between stars, and um, we argued for a connection between these organic molecules and life. Uh, we published these papers at the time. At that time, of course, we could get up these papers published, and uh, loads of papers were published in the journal Nature, which is the, one of the top journals, scientific journals. So it's all well documented uh, that we had argued the case for. Uh, organic molecules and even for bacterial type material in deep space. Mm. Uh, By the way, let me make one little housekeeping uh, announcement. Kintia found the hiccup that prevented me from seeing Dr. Wickrama Singh's um, bio. So if you want to go to the bottom of the guest page tonight, there it is in all its glory. And you can see that when you're listening to him tell us what's been found out there, pay careful attention. He's done his homework. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you know, we, one doesn't make a statement like that. There's life everywhere, lightly. No, it's, unless you want to get crossed and yeah. You know, anyway. yeah. Okay, but, so yeah, can... um, if if there's life everywhere, uh, let me ask the first question: 
if a planet like the model has been for decades, you know, with decent temperatures and liquid water and energy sources like lightning and volcanoes and all that, if that's not a suitable place for little molecules to get together and say, we're here, why is interstellar space more life-friendly than that little primordial sea model, which has been with us for many, many, many hundreds of years? Well, because the primordial sea model has never succeeded in, in making life even from these organic molecules. Uh, the, 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 the switch, the transformation from non-living organic molecules to the simplest living system, such a huge informational gap that it is probably one of the rarest events in the whole of the universe. But once it has happened, once organic molecules have been transformed into a self-replicating biological system, then everything sort of uh, starts uh, on a cosmic scale and it spreads. Just okay, like okay. One... Uh, I have several questions. One is the Earth is roughly four, four and a half billion years old. Hmm. The universe, 13.67, somewhere around there which is like roughly three times. So why in a universe only three times older did Mm. this improbable event happen elsewhere, somewhere out there, but not on the earth? Because a factor of three is nothing when you're dealing with, as Dyson showed, factors of trillions, trillions. Yeah, the the answer is that it it required, the the, the switch from non-life to life, Required essentially all the all the material resources that are available in the entire universe, and all the time that could be available in the entire universe. So, so in an incredibly rare, rare, rare event, you need a huge number of experiments and a huge amount of time for lightning to strike just once. Just once, and once. As but that's all it has that, to do. That's all that, and after that, it's unstoppable. That's the uh, that's the key to the See, whole See, that's the story. first reasonably scientific answer I have heard to the perennial question. Well, you guys are just pushing off the inevitable because if it didn't form on Earth, then it could never form anywhere. So, how do we get here? You're saying no, that you- with enough stuff and enough time, that improbable Dyson event happened once, and that's all it needed for it to take off and create. God knows what intelligent complexity in the universe as a whole. And the, and the interaction between the different sites that life had taken uh, toehold on and so on, that would be inevitable. Once life starts, then it essentially spreads everywhere and intersects and interacts one with another right across the So galaxy. then if you have a carrier mechanism like interstellar clouds, mm. that ultimately you wind up with solar systems and comets, and they're the seeding mechanism, then in any fertile place, any suitable Petri dish, planetary-wise, that this this primordial material encounters, it's like another colonization. That's exactly the way we think it is. It's going to be comets that picked up the the primordial life from the interstellar clouds, the intergalactic clouds, and in the warm, watery interiors of comets. Comets have warm, watery interiors for the reason that there are radioactive heat sources, right? And within these comets, there would be um, domains where 
the bacteria can not only just remain in a freeze-dried state, they can even multiply and, um, and live over eons of time. So they are, the comets are the incubators, the transporters, the, uh, the carriers of life, right? Okay. The, um, Arrhenius was talking about panspermia, meaning the natural process of just wafted stuff from system to system to system until it found the right environment. What about mm. the idea that I think it was Dyson who entered this conversation, directed panspermia, meaning A, you've got biological materials just dying to find a nice little petri dish somewhere in some star system, but B, you've got intelligent civilizations that are directing these ships, these seed ships, these seed flotillas to spread life as far and as wide as they can. What do you think of that idea? Well, I think you cannot, you really cannot rule that out. If, if we think of ourselves as, say, humans or humans from, say, 20 years or 30 years on from now, we would have developed biotechnologies that are fully capable of doing that. We can make, uh, we can package our, our DNA or DNA of bacteria or plants, animals in little tiny particles and just throw them out. Use uh, sunlight, the pressure of sunlight to sort of essentially fling them out into deep space and uh, hope that sooner or later these would be taken up by some other um, embryonic planetary system. Uh, logically, that's uh, certainly not, it certainly cannot be ruled out. And I think it may be, uh, may be happening in one or two places. But I think the panspermia, the uh, uh, the non-intelligent way of uh, distributing life is just using the pressure of starlight, the pressure of sunlight, the uh, the fact that comets are suitable incubators for primitive life, and that comets essentially uh, continue to throw out this material even in our own solar system. The the space between planets is just filled with uh, with dust particles with call them interplanetary dust, and amongst that interplanetary dust would be a population of bacterial particles that were essentially expelled from comets. So all of the, the planetary bodies like uh, Mars and Earth and uh, even the moons of Jupiter and so on, they, they would be in receipt of this material and the the, the, the the possibility that they're all infected with the same basic biochemical structures has to be considered as a very, very serious possibility. Well, uh, I'm going to kind of leap around here. Um, there have been a recent, as I said, flood of papers published by mainstream biologists. I think I saw a couple with your name on them. Mm -hmm. saying that there is current life on Mars. And the stunning thing is it looks incredibly similar to Earth life. I think it has to be similar. Uh, the, the Earth over the period of, uh, period over which life has uh, developed and uh, uh, got amplified in various ways, the, the Earth would have picked up all, almost all the possibilities of living structures in our solar system. So these same 
bits and pieces, the bacteria, the little bits, cells that uh, led to the evolution of life on Earth would have been falling on all these other planets. So it's not at all surprising that uh, Mars and... Mm. Uh, but the... but uh, a guy named Gaylord Simpson at Harvard, and then Sagan mm. picked up on it, said if you duplicated all the conditions on Earth, you mm. would not get a Triceratops, you wouldn't get Homo erectus, you wouldn't get you know, spiny anteaters, because the evolutional, you know, sequence of trillions of decisions in that random walk process would result in different organisms that may be equally adapted to those environments, but they wouldn't look or or act anything like the ones we're currently familiar with. You're saying that that's not true? I think the the possibilities are limited of the different uh, forms of life that could evolve will be limited by the uh, uh, the logic that is built into the, uh, the, the, the genity units. I, I think there is some pre uh, a predestiny that is essentially built into the, the the cosmic genome that is essentially thrown around across the whole universe. So you're Just saying imagine- it's not a random process. There's some kind of template. There's some kind of template that uh, encompasses a wide range of life forms get, that could develop from the uh, the jigsaw. Think of them as sort of bits of a jigsaw puzzle uh, thrown around and uh, right across the universe. And these jigsaw, puzzle, jigsaw pieces uh, essentially get together, they self-assembly, and they form uh, an, an array whole vast array of living forms uh, but the uh, but the forms that can result from that are limited by the by the by the essentially by the, the shapes and the geometry of these uh, individual bits of the jigsaw puzzle so i think we are limited by the um, the initial conditions that were uh, essentially imposed on this system at the time that life originated so you're saying that if you have a similar environment, you're going to get a similar or identical creature? I think so. I, I mean, I think we are not going to be the end of the road in evolution in terms of intelligence, in terms of sophistication of uh, behavior and so on. I think we are probably, uh, humans are probably, maybe well, not even are you half. aware that NASA actually seems to have found some stunning evidence in favor of this model and then promptly ground it to dust on live television i've heard that i didn't i don't know the details but well uh, if you go to the other side of midnight you'll find mm. links to the enterprise mission and there's a paper there that i wrote god mm. was it 2000 i think mm. the spirit rover had mm. taken photographs after mm. the landing and they opened it up and all that mm. of what looked like the stem of a broken off crinoid Mm, yeah, yeah. I've heard that. I've seen pictures of that. Yeah, and then um, they and yeah. then and then they use the what they call the rat. It's a very good description of a machine yeah. used to destroy things, and they ground the damn thing to dust. Of all the places they could have put that little abrasion tool, they yeah. put it right over the putative fossil and eliminated it. Yeah. Now yeah. think of the tri- in the model of evolution, the trillions of separate steps required to get mm. crinoids on two planets separated yeah. the closest approach by 35 million miles. Yeah, yeah. 
I think the the, the attract, attraction for pans, of panspermia for me is that if panspermia is the way that life started on the earth, then there's going to be life everywhere. Every habitable location, every habitable moon. And every you can stretch planet. the concept of habitability because, look, we've got, what, radiolaria that might to live in nice, warm, cozy nuclear reactors, that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. if you yeah. look at life falling like manna from heaven on every available planetary surface or lunar moon surface, you know, the outer moons of Jupiter, and yeah. you can imagine adaptation to local environments, there could be on those radical environments a stunning array of radical creatures. And the only reason the Mars guys look like us is because Mars is so much like Earth that the difference is not worth discussing. Absolutely. I mean, even on the Earth, the conditions, there are such varied conditions from deep in the entire. Well, yellow, to... the, the, the bacteria, those gorgeous colors in, in like yeah. Yellow, Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's, there is a range, and the, the, the range of conditions on the Earth has picked through evolution, through adaptation of the uh, organisms that have fallen onto the planet. They've, uh, the, the, each location, each niche has, has picked out its own. Sort of particular so if we rate. want to find really alien life forms, we're going to have to go to really alien places. Really alien places where the conditions are unrecognizable with any conditions. Wow, that like 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 the, the clouds over Venus. Well, the clouds of the Venus are not not that unlike. I mean, there's it's full of sulfuric well, acid. Well, I was going to say the sulfuric acid is is like it's stronger than battery acid. That's yeah, a pretty yeah. strenuous environment. That's, that's a strenuous environment, but I, I I wouldn't put it past the the scope of biology to have some adaptation. Oh no, some... I'm thinking absolutely for this conversation and others that we should be sending biological missions, you know, hot air balloons or helium or whatever, to float around and sample the clouds above Venus, because that's going to be where you're going to find really weird stuff. Yeah, in, in your as, model. Yeah, I think so. As weird as the the system of a unified biology would permit. A, a, a single panspermic model tells you that there is a wide range of uh, of possibilities, but they all fall within the scope of a single biochemical system, isn't it? I mean, there's no go- mm. there's not going to be any fundamental differences between life that you find on uh, on on the in the clouds of Venus or. Well, what's the latest read on what the Russians found on the exterior of the space station? Oh, they found a whole lot of extremophiles, right? Uh, bacteria that are known to exist in very hostile locations on the Earth. But the, the question of how those bacteria in, in the most bizarre places that you find on the Earth could have reached the, the space station is really quite uh, almost impossible to understand. I think they, f- they are falling from the skies, they're falling from above. And the space station has just picked up these organisms, and the scientists have taken them to the lab. And, well, and see, if, if, if that's true, there is a fairly cheap experiment that could be done to prove that. Absolutely. I, I, I either think you so. send I, your own space crew. We talked about this the last time, you know, a civilian, you know, a CubeSat into distant orbit to basically just sit there like yes. a long, long duration exposure facility and get coated with interplanetary organisms or you visit previous spacecraft that are in geosynchronous orbits or bigger 
where you could not possibly have any transmission from the earth. Yeah. And you yeah. do scrapings. You don't have to bring them back. You just bring back samples. And you, you analyze it in terrestrial laboratories and see what's on their surface, right? I think absolutely. I mean, that's, that's an important project that I've, I've been talking about for a couple of years that has to be done to prove, one sense for all, either prove or disprove this uh, possibility of life coming from space. Hmm. And it may be even important for our own safety, because if we think that... Uh, dangerous viruses and bacteria from time to time could come and cause devastating pandemics, then it will be useful to know uh, ahead of these uh, coming down on the earth that they're in our, in our immediate environment and maybe we can uh, get prepared for new pandemics, essentially plan for the production of vaccines if necessary and so on. So. Monitoring the skies for our safety, I think, is a very important. Uh, mm. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, we've reached another milestone. We're at the top of the hour. So why don't we uh, kind of pause for a moment and take a break, kind of think about what uh, uh, Chandra has been telling us? Because to me, it opens up such extraordinary possibilities because it means there is life potentially everywhere. I mean, literally everywhere. In which case, you know, when the spacecraft get to Mars, the United Arab Emirates and the um, uh, spacecraft, which has been sent by the Chinese and the others, uh, what they will find are life forms, which are, shall we say, remarkably familiar because they will be life forms that basically are the same that we encounter here. Um, I'm really enjoying our conversation because some of these very fundamental questions, like, you know, when Dyson came out with those numbers many years ago, it really made it appear like, you know, life in the universe itself would have been impossible given the odds against, but, but it also seems that, uh, um, you know, there's, there's, the factor of huge numbers, when you have mm. enough possible places and enough time, it only has to happen once. But see, that puts us in the category of, uh, what shall we say, um, situations where it's so rare that people will probably assume it could never happen. Or if it happens once, then we're dealing with something that would be on the order of a miracle. We'll return to all this on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're playing, we're, we're playing tonight for our bumpers uh, music from Michael Giacchino, who wrote this extraordinary score to John Carter, which kind of hovers behind all of this because when these spacecraft get to Mars, will they find an ancient world of burrows? We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.